0: This show is made possible entirely by the support of the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from markfiore.com, The Young Turks, This American Life, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, and The Daily Show. With a bonus video clip today for our iPhone app users from The Daily Show.
1: With banks again floating on a sea of green, it's time we got to the bottom of how they did it then and what they want now in Born to Lose. An inspirational American story of winning by losing. Realizing that their portfolios included loads of shaky loans and bundled bullshit. The winners of Wall Street knew it was time to act. But why fix what's broken when you can make it worse? And profit handsomely. All you had to do was add more shaky loans and bundled bullshit. Guaranteed to fail. Then take out gambler's insurance, which pays you off big time for losing, which means you've won. Pretty soon, everyone tried losing to win. I'm losing everything just so I can win. But few seemed able to replicate the banker's success. Banks now beg to be left alone, preferring instead the invisible hand of the free market, which allows them to continue doing God's work. Fortunately, bankers have good friends in the Republican Party who call regulation that would actually prevent bailouts a bailout, which sends the Luntz Linguistic Index up 358% in the first quarter. If they hold fast against the curse of banking reform, winning by losing may be here to stay. And perhaps you, too, can win, because you're definitely already a loser.
2: I'm a loser.
3: on the fact that he appeared to be sporting the big bankers. Uh, he came over the convening suit. So he's like, big bankers? No, 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 no. I meant I'm for the small bankers, the community bankers. And when pressed further on it, there was this great little exchange. Let's watch.
4: How do you push back against this perception that you are doing the bidding of the large? banks? You know, there was a report that you guys met with hedge fund managers in New York. Isn't uh, a lot of people are viewing this this particular line of argument, this bailout argument? Well, as you could you could talk back.
1: to the community bankers in Kentucky who are. Uh, bankers uh, bankers uh, but, I, but I'm telling you about the community bankers in Kentucky. This is not <laughs> everybody. Have you talked with other people other than community bankers? Well, sure. I, we, we talk to people all the time. <laughs> I'm not denying that. What's wrong with that? I mean, that, that's how we learn how people feel about legislation. But the community bankers in Kentucky, the little guys, but what do you say the, the, the Main Kentucky Street State guys, State, just the Main State State. Street guys are overwhelmingly opposed what you to this say bill. To
4: folks who say that this is just meant yep. to deflect attention from the fact that you're representing the large banks.
3: <laughs> I say that that's. He says, uh, I say that's inaccurate. Uh, we talk to people all the time. What do you mean? What are you talking about? He talked to the top 25 bankers in the country. That's why he went to New York last week uh, to try to collect their money. And then he went and did their bidding, and he got caught with his hand in the cookie jar. So Remember that speech we showed you? with uh, And now the biggest problem, and I repeat, now the biggest problem is that the Democrats want a bailout that is permanent. The Democrats want a bailout that is permanent. We must kill financial reform. Did I do that right? We must kill financial reform. So, oh, see the, oh got caught in the cookie jar." So there, everybody's on him now. Hey look, I mean the media is asking him tough questions. Ah God, I love that. He says "We talk to people all the time. Is it me or does Michigan kind of look like he had the soul sucked out of him? me the,
5: by the line switch.
0: A single minute of your time has never had the potential to make as big an impact as right now. I'm in the running to receive a scholarship to help pay my way to Netroots Nation this year, and all I need is your vote of support to get it. I hope to raise around 600 votes to secure a slot among the winners, but I'm not there yet. All you have to do is visit bestoftheleft.com and click the banner near the top for the scholarship competition and then add your name to the growing list of grassroots supporters. One minute of your time can get me that much closer to attending Netroots Nation and saving hundreds of dollars in the process. Thanks so much for your support.
6: This inside job takes place deep in the heart of Wall Street financial engineering. It's full of intrigue and genius and questionable behavior, and it resembles in ways that will eventually be revealed the plot of a Mel Brooks musical. But it begins far from Wall Street, on the shores of Lake Michigan in Chicago, where a man named Alec Litowitz was starting a new hedge fund. We'll get to what exactly a hedge fund is in a minute. First, though, here's Jake Bernstein from ProPublica with the hedge fund's name.
7: Magnetar. And that's because Lidowitz, the guy who started Magnetar, is a big astronomy buff. Uh, a magnetar uh, is um, kind of like a black hole. It's a star that's burned out. And it is the most magnetic force in the universe. And they have a marketing spiel.
6: You may not have noticed, but that was the other half of the ProPublica duo entering the conversation, Jesse Isinger.
8: And they have a marketing spiel. They say that this firm is going to attract the best employees, the best investors. Uh, We're going to have the highest returns. And they give T-shirts to people that say very bright, very magnetic. Uh, and, you know, there were sometimes employees would joke that they're named after a black hole. But uh, for the most part, they they start out with these high ambitions and excitement, and they're really enthusiastic about it.
6: So what do hedge funds do anyway? Well, basically, they gather a bunch of money from investors, and they try to get that money to grow using whatever strategy they think will make them and their investors rich. Magnetar decided that one of the ways it was going to make money was by investing in a corner of the financial markets we've heard a lot about lately. Securities made of subprime mortgages. And it was going to go for one of the more esoteric of these securities, collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs. Such are the times that we live in that CDOs have appeared on more than one episode of This American Life lately. CDOs have the distinction of being the single most toxic financial instruments of the financial crisis the instruments that did more damage to the world's financial system than any other single instrument out there. And what you need to know about a CDO to understand this story is pretty simple. A CDO, at least the kind Magnetar was interested in, is a financial security that's made up of dozens of bonds. And each bond is itself made up of hundreds of individual mortgages. And not safe mortgages. These were pretty risky ones to borrowers with poor credit. Now, Alec Litowitz, who was only 38 when he started Magnetar, had already amassed a personal fortune in finance. This allowed him and his wife to take a couple years kicking around Europe, collecting antiques for a big house they were building on the shores of Lake Michigan. And during the time they were away, CDOs were becoming the hot new thing on Wall Street. A record number were on their way to being sold in 2005, which would shatter the previous record set in 2004. But by the time Alec Lidowitz was back and had his new hedge fund up and running at the end of 2005, things were starting to change in the CDO world. We talked to a guy named Bill Tomjanovic, a guy on Wall Street who put together CDOs. He said that at the end of 2005, people on Wall Street were starting to worry about the housing market. Unfortunately, since Bill's in finance, he doesn't say it like that. He says it like this.
9: And 2005 this summer um, spreads on, on RMBS collateral started expanding
6: and and that's and that is uh banker speak for people started to worry about yes, <laughs> yes. about the housing market yeah, uh yes now what bill's saying here which sounds really boring it is huge it means that part of our theory the theory that got us into the story in the first place was correct there was a group of people on wall street who were not like most people in america they were not caught by surprise in two thousand and five, two full years before the collapse of the major subprime lenders like New Century and Countrywide, three full years before the failure of Lehman Brothers and AIG and the big government bailout, a lot of people on Wall Street were looking at housing prices around the country and seeing signs that things were not well.
9: Las Vegas had a you know an overheated market, uh, certain sectors of California were looking uh, very aggressive uh, in terms of uh, in terms of real estate valuation. Um, was it enough, you know, have you, did, was the bubble ready to burst?
6: You could see this uncertainty showing up in bond prices in 2005, long before everything crashed. The anxiety is right there in the interest rate numbers. Some of the people on Wall Street who buy bonds that are made up of hundreds of home mortgages were starting to demand more interest for their investment, saying essentially, we'll buy this bond, but you have to pay us more because it's looking riskier to us which is just another way of saying we're worried. And because of this, people like Bill Tomjanovic were thinking that the good times might be coming to an end in the CDO world.
9: The level of difficulty to replicate the business plan of '05 in '06 was pretty... I mean, everyone was worried, how are we going to, you know, keep the volume... I mean, keep volume up, make the same amount of money for the firm. How are we going to recreate this in '06 because of this? it was such a great year in '05.
6: So here's all these people on Wall Street in late 2005, thinking the CDO business might be slowing down, housing might be cooling off, things might be returning to normal. And then in walks Magnetar.
7: Magnetar spends the the, the first quarter of of 06 uh, uh, talking to as many people as possible in the CDO business, really understanding it, uh, interviewing people, um, getting a a good sort of lay of the land. Um, And then they put out the word that they want to buy equity. Okay, equity,
6: a quick word of explanation. Every CDO was divided into layers, a layer at the top that was considered the safest, the layers below that, which were considered semi-safe, and then the bottom layer, which was considered the riskiest. Of course, after the crash, we learned that no part of the CDO was safe. Every part of most subprime CDOs is now worthless. But back in 2005 and 2006, they were still making these distinctions. So the part at the bottom, that riskiest part, That was called the equity tranche. Tranche is just Wall Street lingo for a layer. The equity tranche, the equity layer, paid a lot more interest than the top layers. The idea being, if you bought that risky equity, you got paid for that risk. But still, it was the riskiest part of a CDO that was made up of risky bonds, backed by risky mortgages. It was not an easy sell. Here's Bill Tomjanovich.
9: The equity used to be the, was the toughest part um, you know, when the business early, early 2000s, mm-hmm. um,
6: either, you as finding somebody to take the riskiest, riskiest portion, portion it, that was the hardest part. It was, find. it was very difficult. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So here we are in early 2006, CDO managers and investment banks are thinking the CDO party's ending and in comes this hedge fund saying not only do they want to buy CDOs, but
7: they want to buy that, that lowest tranche, that lowest piece of the CDO, the one that was hardest to place, the one that was hardest to place. And they want to buy lots and lots and lots of it. As one banker said to us, it was like a miracle. You know, suddenly this big equity buyer shows up.
6: In other words, it seemed like Wall Street felt it had found its sucker. An article in Business Week later wondered if Magnetar was poised to get quote shredded. Magnetar's entrance into the CDO market in 2006 had a huge impact, though. If they were willing to buy the equity piece, it became easier for Wall Street banks to make the CDO. Buyers were easier to find for the parts that were less risky. Magnetar, as the equity buyer, was often called the sponsor of the CDOs in which it bought the equity, since without Magnetar, the CDO probably wouldn't have gotten made in the first place. Magnetar's entry into the market helped the CDO business, which insiders worried was petering out in 2005, roar back to life. 2006 ended up being even bigger than 2005. In fact, it became the best year in CDO history. A lot of CDO deals got done, and a lot of that had to do with Magnetar.
7: Their pace of production was extraordinary. by, By any estimation, in a year's time, from the middle of 06 to the middle of 07, they did 28 deals you know, worth an estimated $40 billion.
6: Just to put that in perspective, that's about a third to a half of this corner of the subprime CDO market that they were operating in.
8: And for one hedge fund to account for that
6: much was very rare. In fact, we we ran this by um, Bill Tomjanovic, the uh, CDO manager. He he was familiar with Magnetar, um, but he didn't know how many deals they'd been a part of. And when we ran that number by him, he was pretty impressed.
8: That's a lot of deals. <laughs> That's a lot of deals. Was that, is that enough to sort of be an influence
9: in the market? Uh, I would say that, uh, wow, it sounds big. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
2: Now,
6: most insiders who knew Magnetar would not have described them as suckers. In fact, every single person that Jake and Jesse and I have talked to about Magnetar uses the same word to describe them, smart. Sometimes they'll say really smart. And yet, here they were, going on this huge spending spree, buying the riskiest parts of these financial products that were all backed by a housing market. Insiders were starting to view with more and more suspicion. And that caused a lot of people to wonder, why?
8: People puzzled it out, and they talked about it, and they tried to figure out, well, what's the strategy here? Why would they like
7: such risky stuff? And then they figured it out. As one CDO manager said to us, you know, at a certain point, we were in on the joke. The joke being that Magnetar was also betting against the very CDOs that it was creating.
6: So how do you bet against a CDO? You don't need to go to Vegas. You don't even need to leave Wall Street. There's another type of financial product that Wall Street had created. It's called a credit default swap. You may have heard that term before as well. A credit default swap can be used to bet that some part of a CDO will fail. And the way it works, you pick a CDO that you think might fail, and then you pay some Wall Street firm a little bit of money a few times a year. If the CDO does fine, the Wall Street firm keeps your money. But if it fails, the Wall Street firm pays you the entire value of the part of the CDO that you're betting against, a massive amount of money. The theory on the street was, Magnetar didn't care in the long term whether the equity it was buying survived. They made the equity investment mainly as a catalyst for the creation of the rest of the CDO. Magnetar would cause these CDOs to be created by buying this tiny equity portion, which was typically just 5 or 6% of the value of the entire CDO. And then they'd place a bet, take out a credit default swap, on one of the larger sections above. They also placed bets against other, similar CDOs out there. So the theory among many of the people Jake and Jesse interviewed, and I should emphasize, Magnetar disputes this theory, but the theory was... Say the equity portion cost Magnetar $10 million to buy, but the entire CDO itself is 100 times that, a billion or even $2 billion. If one of the upper sections of the CDO goes bust and Magnetar is betting against it, they stood to make a lot more than $10 million, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars. It was such a brilliant idea. Soon others got in on the act.
8: This strategy was being employed by some hedge funds uh, but Magnetar was the biggest. They did it uh, the most. They put the most money toward it. And in fact, on Wall Street, it became known, according to the people we've talked to, as the Magnetar trade.
2: My heart stopped my blood still alive. The rain is the ground and the trees they dry the sky. My Trace eyes wake up but my brain the Horizon, one more thing for you faces faces and I to before we shut our eyes and cast blame. Blame me and I'll blame you. And we're both right. Cutting me faces in the pies
5: Here is is your first quote. I have managed to sell a few bonds to widows and orphans that I ran into at the airport. (laughs) That (laughs) is from an email sent by a man named Fabrice Tour. He was one of the bankers at what firm who had to defend himself in front of Congress this week? It must be Goldman Sachs. That is right. Absolutely.
1: You know what I loved about that?
5: What was your favorite part of the hearing? When, um, you know, they're sitting there talking about financial tools, and I'm thinking, (laughs) financial tools? (laughs) Yeah, look in the mirror.
0: (laughs) And I, li- I just like, I'm from Michigan, so I was very proud of Carl Levin. Because I, you, when's the last time anyone's dropped any kind of bomb? F, S bomb, D bomb, I mean, anything <laughs> in session like that. I thought that was great. It was pretty
5: crazy. Well, what yeah. happened was is that he, of course, was quoting from one of their own emails. Right, 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 right. right, right. And he's kept quoting using their vulgar term. He, right. We can't say it because we're above the standards of the of U.S. Course, Senate. Right. <laughs> um But we'll, we'll say that he referred to poopy deals. Yeah. Poopy deals. Poopy deals.
0: Nobody has right. uh, said one word that many times since yeah. Alan Iverson. <laughs>
5: but no, I yeah, practice, practice, yeah. y'all practice stealing from people. You do oh, it's practice. Yes, exactly. oh, practice
4: stealing.
5: <laughs> They're calling fabulous. Well, well what happened? I should explain. Is, is that there was a Senate subcommittee in permanent investigations. They had these guys from Goldman Sachs, and and, and you know they can't do anything to them. They they can't bring charges. To the Senate camps, so, but they just tried to shame them. But it turns right. out the shame Ooh. is bred out of them in their breeding tanks. Right, under the right. right, right. Sure, yeah. That's no
1: shame to be had.
5: Know, so they just sat there, stared at the Senate, and they explained. This was more or less their excuse. You can't blame us if people were stupid enough to trust us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's what they said. And the senators responded, hey, you know, that's not bad. And they went out to campaign in that slogan <laughs> this fall. <laughs> you know, it's true. I, I could tell the bankers were not particularly pleased because they left without leaving their traditional 20% tip for Congress. Uh, uh,
10: yes, right. whoa. Uh, whoa. That's a little high for Congress. A working
11: class hero is something to be
5: Looking crazy can't follow the rules
0: Working class zero
6: is something to be Working class zero is something to be Okay, here's another piece of jargon. The strategy of betting that something will go down in value In the language of Wall Street, it's called shorting, or taking a short position. And there were a handful of other hedge funds out there shorting housing-related securities, like CDOs. A new book by author Michael Lewis, The Big Short, tells several of their stories. And generally, there's nothing wrong with shorting. In fact, many people argue that shorting, which happens millions and millions of times a day every single day on Wall Street, is actually a good thing, because it keeps prices more tethered to reality. It's harder for a mania to develop if people who have a dim view of things can bet on that view. But the Magnetar trade was not shorting in the traditional sense, betting against something which already exists. The Magnetar trade was betting against something Magnetar itself helped create, which is the exact opposite of what you want shorting to do. In traditional shorting, by betting, essentially, that certain things out there are crappy and overvalued, you are helping to rid the world of those crappy, overvalued things. But a lot of people thought that what Magnetar was doing was bringing crappy, overvalued things into the world in order to bet against them. We talked to John Picard, a lawyer whose firm is suing an investment bank that helped set up some of the deals with Magnetar and with other hedge funds that were doing what Magnetar was doing.
4: Yeah, A number of the hedge funds, you know, they were simultaneously entering into significant short positions uh, with respect to the CDO or its collateral. And in other words, were they being... Basically built to fail. Uh, in some cases, yes.
6: You know, in, in trying to come up with the, with with a, with an accurate metaphor. Um, have you ever seen the producers? Yes. So in the plot of The Producers, there's a scene where the he hires an accountant and he says, it, where he's like sort of like murmuring to himself and he's like, hmm, you could almost make more money if the play fails than if it succeeds.
4: <laughs> amazing. It's absolutely amazing, but under the right circumstances, a producer could make more money with a flop than he could with a hit. It feels very similar, is it? But well, from the uh, from the hedge fund standpoint, that clearly was the case. You know, clearly they would benefit more uh, if the you know CDO you know ultimately failed.
1: Don't you see, Bloom? Darling Bloom, glorious Bloom. It's so simple. Step one, we find the worst play ever written. Step two, we hire the worst director in town. Step three, I raise two million dollars. Two? Yes, one for me, one for you. Step four, we hire the worst actors in New York and open on Broadway. And before you can say step five, we close on Broadway. Take our two million and go to Rio. Rio? Nah, that'd never work. Oh, ye of little faith.
6: Jake and Jesse have had several conversations with Magnatar, and they say what they were doing was nothing like what Nathan Lane is singing about here. Magnetar says, we didn't have an opinion on whether the housing market would crash or soar. We weren't hoping the CDOs would fail. We weren't betting against them. We were simply hedging ourselves. Now, this is something you hear a lot on Wall Street, the great hedge versus bet debate. A hedge is like insurance. If you're making an investment in something like a house, you expect the house to stay standing, you expect to live in it, but something could happen. It could catch fire or get swept away by a tornado or fall into a sinkhole, so you buy insurance. In other words, you hedge. You pay a little bit a year in case those things happen, but that doesn't mean you're betting that they will. And in fact, hedge funds originally got their name because in the early days of hedge funds, they hedged all kinds of bets. And that is exactly what Magnetar said it was doing, being a classic hedge fund. By buying credit default swaps on the CDOs it was helping create, it was simply protecting itself if something unforeseen happened to them. The problem with figuring out whether it's a bet or a hedge is that the action of betting and the action of hedging look exactly the same. The only difference is intent. But there are some clues to look for that help figure out intent. For example, is the size of the bet against the investment Bigger than the investment itself. Are they taking out a million-dollar insurance policy on a $100,000 house? So in Magnetar's case, it would be interesting to see how many bets did they make on which CDOs for how much money. Unfortunately, none of this information is public. Still, in the case of the Magnetar deals, there is some evidence that the play was expected to flop. To understand this evidence, you have to know a little bit about how a CDO gets marketed and sold. Okay, so first you have the investors. This can be anyone who wanted to buy a layer of a CDO. Could be a hedge fund like Magnetar, a pension fund, an insurance company. They're the buyer. Then you have the seller. That was the Wall Street Bank. They were the ones who went out and found the investors, and said, Hey, we're putting together the CDO. Would you like to buy a piece of it? And in the CDO business, there was often a third party, the CDO manager. The CDO manager is the one person in this transaction who has what's called fiduciary duty. They're there to make sure that investors aren't being ripped off, that the game's played honestly.
7: The CDO manager was sort of like the referee. He would be uh, the the entity that stood between the investors and the bank.
6: The CDO manager had one other very important function. The CDO manager picked the assets that went into the CDO. Okay, assets. Remember, CDOs are a bunch of mortgage-backed loans bunched together. These mortgage-backed loans, in Wall Street parlance, were called the CDO's assets. They were also called the collateral. It's basically the stuff that goes in to making the CDOs. The CDO manager picked that stuff. Again, here's Jake and Jesse.
7: So we interviewed a lot of bankers and CDO managers and others in the business, and they told us something interesting. Uh, They said that Magnetar was frequently pushing for riskier assets to be put into the CDOs.
6: All right, I'm going to play that last bit again because that is key.
7: Uh, They said that Magnetar was frequently pushing for riskier assets to be put into the CDOs.
6: In other words, Magnetar was targeting the referees, the CDO managers. Jake and Jesse have compiled seven different cases where Magnetar actively tried to influence the CDO managers to get them to put riskier assets into their CDOs. For example, in Magnetar's very first deal to put together a CDO.
8: We spoke to a person who was involved in the deal. And right away it became clear to the CDO manager, according to this person, that Magnetar wanted influence. And they would ask for specific bonds to buy. They'd say, would you consider these bonds? And according to this person that we talked to, uh, they said, let's just say that we didn't think their suggestions made a lot of sense.
6: You are understanding this right. The CDO manager was confused because the investor, Magnetar, was putting pressure on him to put riskier assets into the CDO that that very same investor was buying. And this happened over and over with Magnetar CDOs. There was another banker involved in the creation of another Magnetar CDO who described a, quote, back-and-forth fight between Magnetar and the CDO manager over the quality of the assets, again, with Magnetar pushing for riskier ones. And there was another deal where the fight took place over email, which Jake and Jesse got copies of. Uh,
7: In an email that uh, one Magnetar person wrote uh, in September of 2006 said, uh, the original portfolio target spreadsheet that I have uh, had a strangely low spread target. That of course would not at all be beneficial to us. I have attached the target portfolio that I would like for this deal with target spreads. So basically in the email, they're saying, uh, the, these are the kinds of assets we want, and, and this is how we, risky we want it to be. Well, the, the CDO manager was was not terribly excited about this, and uh, he sent an email back uh, rather forcefully saying, we will not assemble a portfolio we are not proud of and feel strongly about in the name of a spread target. And so the two sides drifted apart, and the CDO was, was never consummated, in part because of the CDO manager's concern about Magnetar's need for riskier assets.
6: And finally, there's a meeting Jesse and Jake had over lunch with a former banker who worked on one of Magnetar's CDOs. He lost his job soon after. At lunch, they showed this banker the list of unusually risky assets that were in the CDO that he'd helped put together with Magnetar.
8: And uh, he looked at it, and, you know, he went down the list. And he said, uh, yeah, they asked, and, and they, got it. Uh, they asked for this one, and they got it. They asked for this one, and they got it. And they asked for this one, and it went in. And then he, he said, after looking at this, I deserve to lose my job.
6: There are other clues as well that Magnetar was trying to produce a flop. Magnetar's CDOs, in an independent analysis commissioned by ProPublica, went bad faster than other similar CDOs. And then, of course, there's this. For a company that came in at the height of the housing mania, invested in the riskiest parts of the dodgiest subprime-related CDOs out there, CDOs which got completely wiped out in the crash, a crash which started just months after it finished making its last purchase, Magnetar sure did make a lot of money.
7: 2007 was a very profitable year for Magnetar. We know that uh, one of their funds, the Constellation Fund, which presumably had uh, some of the profits from their CDO business, uh, was up 76%. And we know that the firm, Magnetar, grew rapidly during this period. When uh, uh its founder, Alec Littowitz, uh started Magnetar in 2005, he had $1.7 billion under management. Uh, and uh, by the end of 2007, he had $8 billion. Almost $8, billion. Almost 8 billion.
6: So within the span of almost three years, he'd increased the amount of money under management by
7: $6 billion. Right. And well, some of that, uh, I'm sure, was uh, in, uh, new investors, uh, some of that was also profit from uh, the business that they were doing.
6: If Magnetar was making a lot of money on these CDOs, there was another group that wasn't, and that was the group of people who were buying the top-rated portions of these CDOs that Magnetar was sponsoring and then betting against. There was a group of mutual funds in Tennessee that lost a bunch of money on Magnetar CDOs. There was a regional bank in Ohio, a Lutheran fraternal organization in Minnesota. But surprisingly, the biggest purchasers of Magnetar CDOs, we now know, were the very same investment banks that put these CDOs together in the first place. That's right. The banks were making these CDOs and essentially selling them to themselves. For example, one CDO deal that Jake and Jesse have managed to learn a lot about, a CDO that Magnetar put together with J.P. Morgan. Magnetar bought the equity portion of the deal for around $10 million. J.P. Morgan bought the top portion for almost 100 times that nearly a billion dollars. Which was strange because some of the bankers at J.P. Morgan knew that Magnetar had selected especially risky assets to go into the CDO and that Magnetar had placed a bet against the middle portion of the CDO. But they went ahead and put the deal together and then bought the biggest piece of it without hedging themselves. Either because they convinced themselves it still wasn't that risky or because they just didn't give a damn about the risk or some combination of the two. What they were certain about was how much money they'd make in fees.
8: J.P. Morgan made, we understand, $20 million in fees for the bank. Probably about half of which
6: was was, dis- was distributed in bonuses to the bankers who worked on it. Yeah, roughly, generally. Generally.
8: Uh, and yet the bank retained this the top-rated, safest portion of the deal. That eventually got wiped out, and they took about an $880 million loss on the deal, according to people we've spoken to.
0: You can now support this podcast as easily as by shopping online. The next time you need to make a purchase of just about anything, simply visit bestoftheleft.com and use our Amazon.com search box to find what you're looking for. The search box is located right on the side of the website. You can't miss it. When you make your purchase, we get a little commission. It's just another effortless, completely free way for you to help keep the show going strong. Thanks for your support.
1: Scott
3: Brown, Boston Globe is talking to him, and they say, hey, you know, you signed this letter saying you're... uh, uh, opposed to going forward to financial reform. And He says, well, you know, we just think it's not been done the right way. And so the Globe asks him, oh, okay, great. So what do you think would be doing it the right way? What's your alternative? All right, now I'm going to quote the Boston Globe here. Brown left open the possibility that he could support a compromise. Here's a quote from Brown himself. I want to see when it's going to come up, how it's going to come up. I'm always open to working some through, something through so that it's truly bipartisan. Sounds good so far. Brown, whose vote uh, could be critical as Democrats seek to find a GOP member to avoid a filibuster, assiduously avoided talking about the specifics. When asked what areas he thought should be fixed, he replied, quote, well, what areas do you think should be fixed? I mean, you know, tell you tell me, and then I'll get a team and go fix it. So, you have no idea how to fix financial reform you haven't even thought about it yet you ask a reporter from the boston globe what's your fix and then you say well i'm blocking the financial reform and i don't have an alternative but i'm willing to listen to a frickin reporter tell me what the alternative should be it's a joke the whole party's a joke they're all a joke now now, why is scott brown saying this why does he have no alternative no fix at all and blocking reform well you're gonna be shocked to find out his largest donors were wall street bankers who could have seen that coming? Remember, the Tea Party guys supported Scott Brown. They're like, Yeah, Tea Party, we hate
1: the bailouts.
3: Yeah. Meanwhile, the bankers are like, Scott, come here. Uh, what, what do you need on this check so we can get those dupes in the Tea Parties to vote for you so you can kill financial reform so that when we crash next time, we're going to need another bailout? Uh, he got $200,000 in campaign donations from Wall Street and business executives. $106,000 came directly. From just Wall Street executives. Why do you think they gave him that money? So that he can go kill financial reform and go, Gology Wakers. <laughs> I don't know. How will you make that? <laughs> Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster ass nigga knows the plate. The real gangster ass niggas get the flies of the bitches as that gangster ass nigga little shit and The bitches look at gangster ass niggas like a stop sign and play the role of little miss sweet. But catch the bitch all alone, get the digits, take it out and end up hitting the ass with the meat. Cause gangsta ass niggas be the game players, and everything's quiet in the clique. A gangsta ass nigga pulls the trigger and his partner's in the posse, ain't telling off shit. Real gangsta ass niggas don't talk much, all you hear is the black from the gun blast. And real gangsta ass niggas don't run for shit, cause real gangsta ass niggas can't run fast.
7: We talked to one banker uh, in this world uh, who did uh, business, uh, CDO business, and he described uh, what had happened as uh, a success. We were sort of taken aback by this because most of these CDOs failed, and the banks ended up uh, saddled with huge losses, which uh, the taxpayers will be paying off for a long time to come. And, uh, and so we asked, how could this be a success? And he said, well, the bankers did very well. Their bottom lines, their bank accounts, uh, are are still quite full. They might not be at those banks anymore, but uh, they're doing all right. Um, So in the eyes of individual actors, uh, this was not a complete and total debacle.
6: This is an important thing to understand. Bankers made money. Even when they were buying things that eventually blew up the bank. We talked to another CDO manager, Jim Finkel, who said that for every CDO that a bank put together, it got a fee. Usually one or two percent of the overall value of the CDO. Now remember, CDOs were often worth a billion dollars or more. 1% of a billion, that's $10 million. And the bank earned this fee the minute it finished putting the CDO together, not seven or ten years later when the CDO was supposed to finish paying off.
2: Every deal would get you know one or two percent fee, so let's just keep doing billions of dollars of deals, and that'll rack up the tens and twenties, millions of dollars in in fees. Um, I mean, uh, uh, I think Merrill Lynch made seven hundred million dollars in CDO fees in two thousand six. I mean, that's just an enormous amount of money. Um, How many people is that going to inside Merrill Lynch? Um, that was going to uh, you know be somewhere between. You know, 50 and 80 people. You know, 700 million. That's a lot. That whole 700 million dollars was not, um, you know, going to their personal pockets, right? Right, The firm, you know, probably created a bonus pool of say 100 to 150 million dollars out of that. Uh, But still, you know, you're talking about, you know, the head of the group probably walked home with uh, 10 plus million dollars. You know, 15 million dollars.
6: This situation, where the individual bankers made money, whether or not the investments they sold collapsed, should be added to the list of causes of the financial crisis that we're still living out. It helps explain why the crisis was as big as it was. And it also helps explain the answer to the question, wait, why were the CDO managers and investment banks so eager to help Magnetar do this in the first place?
7: I think this is where we have a rousing defense of Magnetar. Um, I mean, essentially, Magnetar... uh, was doing right by uh, its investors. They found a weakness in the Wall Street uh, machine, and they exploited it. But there were other actors in this drama.
6: Those other actors were the CDO managers and investment banks that put these deals together. The ones that Jake and Jesse have spoken to, they knew what Magnetar was doing. They knew that Magnetar was asking for riskier and riskier assets to go into the deal, and they knew that they were placing bets against other parts of the CDOs that they were helping to spawn. And yet, this information wasn't in any of the documents that were available to the Lutherans in Minnesota, or the banks in Ohio, or the mutual funds in Tennessee, or any of the other investors out there who were buying the other parts of the CDOs that Magnetar was sponsoring. And When you look at it this way, if the investment banks and CDO managers had been doing their jobs, actually explaining to their investors what was behind these CDOs, well, the Magnetar trade might not have been possible.
8: So if the investment bank came to an investor and said, we have got an investment for you, uh, a hedge fund actually asked us to create it, and uh, they asked us to put riskier assets into the deal. uh, And, oh, by the way, they're betting against it. Would you like to buy it? And the answer is going to be obvious. They're not going to do it
7: the 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 role of magnetar both as equity investor and uh in in their bets against uh, the very c d o s they helped create were not disclosed uh in any way uh to investors uh in the written documents uh, about the deals not the marketing material not the prospectuses um not in the hundreds of pages uh that an investor could get um uh, to see uh, information about the deal was it disclosed Uh, that it was, in fact, Magnetar who had helped create the deal and who bet against it.
6: There's an argument to be made that the fact that investment banks and CDO managers weren't disclosing this information might present securities law violations. It might be worth looking into anyway if you were, say, I don't know, the Securities and Exchange Commission.
8: Did the banks um, represent this thing that they're selling fairly and accurately and disclose or tell the investors all the material information. Uh, And the question revolves around this concept in the securities law of materiality, which is um, extremely difficult to define. And the materiality
6: issue is just basically what is material? What do the investors need to know? And what do they not need to know? Basically like what, what is material for them to know?
7: Exactly. Right. To make their decision on whether they want to invest or not
6: in the conversations that you've had with like the people on Wall Street and the people and the CDO managers and and uh, and and the um, you know people from Magnetar and everybody, everybody who you've talked to on the inside was was there ever outrage expressed? Did anybody ever say to you, "Man, what those guys were doing that was that was questionable or that seemed wrong or that seemed ethically dubious or anything like that"?
7: The answer is yes, but I think within Wall Street, um, there's a sense that, you know, Magnetar w- was a, a predator, a shark, if you will, and that you don't blame the predator for hunting the prey. You know, that's what predators do. Um, but I recall one banker who we spoke to who said, uh, you know, when Magnatar arrived on the scene, uh, we all should have gone running. We all should have taken off,
8: yeah we should. <laughs> yeah, he
7: said, uh, we should have run for the
8: hills, everyone, all of us in America, That's what yeah. and what was his, what,
7: what did he see as the problem? What he saw was that Magnetar had figured out how dysfunctional the system had become and was, uh, you know w- was going to exploit that dysfunction, and that it should have been assigned to everybody that, uh, you know, that there was something wrong. There was something wrong with the way Wall Street was operating.
6: Even if what was happening here wasn't illegal, it had profound consequences for the financial system, the taxpayers, and the global economy. If the CDO market had been allowed to cool off at the end of 2005, as market insiders thought it might, the financial crisis almost certainly would not have been as bad as it was. Magnetar, by entering the market when it did, by catalyzing the volume of production that it did, extended the mania and exacerbated the crash. Of the 24 Magnetar CDOs that ProPublica was able to track down, 23 of them are nearly worthless today. In total, nearly $40 billion evaporated. A good portion of that $40 billion was held by the banks, no doubt part of the hole the taxpayers had to cover when we bailed out the financial system. The magnetar trade also had a direct impact on the housing market all over the country. If the CDO business had gone down, as people were predicting in 2005, home mortgages would have been less available in 2006 and 2007 to people buying houses in California and Florida. There would have been less money out there looking for riskier and riskier mortgages to stuff into mortgage-backed securities to feed the CDOs that Magnetar was helping to create. There would have been, in short, fewer people in houses they couldn't afford then and fewer people facing foreclosure today. People making short-term decisions for their own short-term profit added to the pain we're all going through now. Fortunes were made on CDO desks all over Wall Street in 2006 and 2007. Some of the banks where those fortunes were made may be gone, but the people who made them, and the fortunes themselves, remain. According to a magazine which tracks hedge fund pay, Alec Litowitz, the head of Magnetar, personally took home an estimated $280 million in 2007. Magnetar declined to comment on that figure. Unlike some of the Wall Street banks with whom the fund worked, Magnetar is still open for business and still looking for ways to make its
4: clients money. Alex Bornberg, who's part of our Planet Money team. Planet Money is a co-production between our program and NPR News. This story was done as a collaboration with ProPublica and the reporters, Jake Bernstein and Jesse Eisinger. A statement from Magnetar And it's full response to our questions. Emails between a CDO manager and Magnetar. A timeline of the deals, analysis, lots of documents. A more detailed version of this story are all at ProPublica's website, ProPublica.org. By the way, just this week, the former CEO of Citigroup, Charles Prince, testified before the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission about CDOs. Citigroup uh, did several CDO deals with Magnetar. The names of those deals, CETUS 2 and 4. Octans-3, Lacerda. Each of these deals was over a billion dollars. Now they're almost worthless, of course. Charles Prince uh, told the commission that CDOs made up most of the losses at Citigroup. He said these were the losses, CDOs, that required the government to bail out the bank. Even though at the time, he said, everyone believed they were totally safe investments. Citi bought the best parts of the CDOs. What Prince called super senior tranches of
9: CDOs, that carried the lowest possible risk of default. It bears emphasis that City was by no means alone in this view, and that everyone, including our risk managers, government regulators, other banks and CDO structurers, all believed that these securities held virtually no risk.
4: Prince uh, emphasized that even the Citibank employees who made the decisions to keep these CDOs on the books had no reason to suspect that they might go bad. In other words... No one saw it coming.
1: Step one. We write a check for $10 million, hand the check to a Wall Street bank, and ask them to make us a CDO. Step two. They create the CDO using risky stuff. Very risky stuff. Extremely risky stuff. Step three. Other investors commit hundreds of millions of dollars to the CDO. Step four. We bet against the CDO using a credit default swap. Step five, the housing market crashes, the CDO's value drops to zero, our bet pays off and we make hundreds of millions of dollars and before you can say step six, we're rich. We're going to bet against the American dream. We're going to be on the winning team. Purchase risky debt on a massive scale. Then place a bet that the debt will fail. Hundreds of millions for Magnetar. The economy collapsing like a dying star. No one will know till it's on NPR. And who cares? It's time to hit the town. This sucker could go down. Again. You know,
6: there's been some uh, encouraging financial news of late, but Americans are still looking at double-digit unemployment.
4: But is there something worse? Asif Manvi filed this report.
6: Wemo
11: toys are American classics, from the hula hoop to the frisbee to whatever the hell this is. But these days, this iconic company faces a harsh reality as I learned when I sat down with CEO Kyle Aguilar at the WAMO corporate headquarters.
12: We moved our production for the frisbees, hula hoops, pool noodles from China back here to the United States. China, they have the, the wages are going up, materials going up, there's more freight charges. Coming back here just makes economic sense.
11: So it costs too much to be in China. It's getting expensive. So, you're telling me that we Americans have to now make our own cheap plastic crap? That's right. While it may seem like creating jobs is a good thing, that overlooks the bigger picture. You're turning America into the third world. Not at all.
12: Yeah. I'm bringing jobs back to America to produce these toys. This is like a
11: reverse kind of colonialism. No. Yes. No. Yes. No. Yes.
12: That's not.
11: Yeah, it is. No, it isn't. Uh, I I I know. You don't. Then you know, why I'm Indian? I know about colonialism.
12: I'm part Mexican. Right. Yeah, I know about it too, and it's not.
11: Okay. Don't try to up third world me. Okay. <laughs> it's gotten so bad that Mexicans are hiring Americans to do the jobs the Chinese don't want to do. And Chinese entrepreneurs like Daxi Li are at a loss to help companies like WAMO. We don't really care too much about this low-tech job. But these are important jobs. They want the high-tech job, not just for this low-cost manufacturing. (laughs) They don't want to do the crappy job.
1: They don't want to do the crappy crappy job, crappy job, crappy job.
0: If we
11: ever wanted to get back to the heady days of 99-cent frisbees and not caring about how they got made, something had to be done. (laughs) What's it going to take to put you in a Somalia, in a Bangladesh? Obviously the pricing. If the
12: pricing fits, and if the the government has substantial structure, then it makes sense.
11: What if the wages were zero?
12: But there wouldn't be the infrastructure. I can't protect, you know, my brands when it goes off to other countries.
11: Protect your brand. You make a pool noodle.
12: As soon as I send it out somewhere else, and they have the
11: technology as well. What is the level of technology that is required to make a foam stick?
12: It's sophisticated.
11: But losing China as a trade partner is going to mean a huge adjustment for companies like Wemo. Does that mean, as Americans, we're gonna have to put our own antifreeze in our toothpaste? Yes. The future of manufacturing looks grim. There's a whole world order here. You're throwing it all out of whack. I'm not throwing it out of whack. And besides, they're the worst sex toys I've ever seen in my life. They're not sex
12: toys. They're kids' toys.
11: They're not sex toys.
12: They're not sex toys. They're kids. You tell
11: me these are not sex toys.
12: They're not sex toys.
11: Okay, then what are, the, what, are the, what are the ridges on the frisbee for?
12: For aerodynamics.
11: What about the, uh, what about the pool noodle? Absolutely not. I'm going to have to make some phone calls.
0: Hi, everyone. Now, running this podcast is an absolute passion of mine that I've been pursuing for years. But, of course, everyone understands that it takes a little bit of money to get along in this world, and that's where the members come in members sign up and donate as little as five dollars a month which allows me to pump out 10 episodes per month now so while you're thinking about that and rationalizing that little expense just realize it breaks down to only 50 cents per episode and it's even less if you sign up for a full year and beyond that in return you get access to a set of members only raw feeds and these deliver audio plus video clips from the show as well as a separate feed just for bonus content that would otherwise end up on the cutting room floor. So for details, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks for your support.
3: Uh, the GOP is unified in their opposition to financial reform. All 41 senators signed a bill saying to Harry Reid, Whoa, ho, ho, nice and easy, big guy. I need you to slow down. This isn't bipartisan. We can't sign off on any of this. What did I tell you yesterday? You remember what I said when I said, oh, John Corner said, I, I don't know, maybe we should break up the big banks. I, don't know. I said, oh, he'll walk that back. Oh, you will get a backpedal on that. Instantly, today, backpedal, backpedal, backpedal. They're like, oh, what, what, what do you mean? No, 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 we, no nothing to the banks. No, 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 leave the banks alone. Poor banks, poor banks. And, of course, in their letter, they talk about, oh, no, we want to prevent bailouts. Uh, we don't want you to do nothing. But right now, you should do nothing and you should keep the status quo as it is. And they even added this sentence, which I thought was uh, critical. They said, uh, their, their letter to Harry, this is a complex issue that could have unintended consequences on job growth, the ability of Americans and business owners to access credit, and the United States' role as a worldwide leader in innovation and capital formation. I mean, that's, a bank lobbyist wrote that for them. That's what the bank lobbyists always say. Oh, no, it's very important that we do financial innovation and that we keep the markets working and, hey, look, we give credit and and create jobs, so you better make sure that you don't touch us at all. Hey, Republicans, you want to stand United on the side of the Wall Street bankers? Oh, have at it, Hoss. Go crazy. See how that works out for you. I told you they'd fall in line, and they did today. They're trying to get the money from the bankers. But I, I don't want you to get confused. They will break. Now I don't predict that often on the show, and the Republicans don't often break. But this unity will break, and some of them will vote for the bill in the end because this is way too politically dangerous. They're playing Russian roulette with their careers here, banking the bank, backing the bankers in this environment. I mean, you can fool some of the people some of the time, and you can fool the Fox News audience all of the time, <laughs> but you can't fool all the people all the time. And this thing's going to blow up on your laps if you keep backing Wall Street in the. In crazy risks that they're taking with our money. People aren't going to stand for it.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. So it's time to start getting a little bit excited. We're uh, less than a month now away from the the first of two big liberal conferences happening this summer the America's future now conference happening in June June 7th to the 9th in Washington DC and I will be in attendance entirely thanks to the support of all of you guys who uh, sent in donations raised a little bit of money to help get me to that event so thanks 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 for all of that support now I just want to start uh, putting out there although I have no details zero details so if you Email and ask for details. I will have none to give you. But what I uh, what I want to say is that during that time in DC, you know, first of all, you should come to DC if you're not already there in a, you know to attend the conference. Uh, secondly, if you're going to be there anyways, whether you attend the conference or not, there's probably going to be something interesting going on that you should be involved in. Whether it's you know a listener meetup or you know some some sort of extracurricular activities going on so uh, if you are the least bit interested in being involved I will be you know putting out details on that through Facebook and Twitter if you want to passively uh, you know be interested in getting that sort of information if you're actively interested in getting that sort of information send me an email and I'll add you to the list so that when these things come up but uh, you know if you know details are solidified times dates places that sort of thing, then I will email you directly and you can be on the in-crowd to get uh, that sort of information. Of course, I'll be announcing it on the show as well, but you know, the show only comes out every couple of days and then maybe you don't listen to it right away. So if you want the up-to-the-minute information, uh, you really got to be in touch uh, You know, by email, Facebook, Twitter, that sort of thing. Speaking of liberal conferences, of course, uh, still working on the scholarship for Netroots Nation. As of this moment, we're almost halfway... To the goal of 600 votes of support to uh, to win the scholarship to help pay my way to Netroots Nation. Of course, I want to go there, uh, experience the whole thing, come back, tell stories on the show, you know, all that sort of thing. I want to be uh, the eyes and ears of anyone who can't make it to the event. So, if you want to support my bid for that, it only takes about a minute. Go to the website bestoftheleft.com, click through to the banner. Click through again on an identical looking banner you you won 't wonder where I stole that image from for the uh, for the banner on my website. Click through again it 'll ask you for your uh, information and, and um, all you have to do is fill it in and that shows your support and uh, pushes me up the list of candidates for that scholarship so now we 're down to something like a couple of weeks left in that competition and uh, trying to get another you know three hundred and fifty votes. It, it sounds doable to me, you know, but we're, we're n- nowhere near there yet. So, uh, so please head to the website and check that out. Now, finally, I just want to thank a couple of members, of course. Uh, Scott G. signed up on February 19th and actually went uh, above and beyond with his monthly membership. W- wanted to go a little above the uh, regular membership rate just to show his support. So thanks, uh, Scott, for doing that. And then James S. uh, signed up for a full year membership starting on March 15th. So a huge thanks to James for uh, being so confident that he wanted to support the show uh, for a full year that that he went ahead and signed up to do that. Of course, these two members and all the members are who make the show possible in the most fundamental way. And then, uh, you know, as thanks, they get to enjoy uh, all the benefits of the Best of the Left raw feeds, including... Video, audio, and strictly bonus content, like stuff that would normally be just on the cutting room floor, goes straight to the members. So that's it for today. I hope uh, every one of you will continue to support the show just by telling all your friends and family about it. To stay connected to the show between episodes, check us out on Facebook and Twitter, of course, and that's where I'll be updating everyone on events that may be happening in Washington, D.C. in June. For details on the show, including links to all the sources and the music used in this and every episode, check out the show notes, which are actually uh, newly formatted. And I think people are enjoying uh, the, the new format of the show notes, both uh, on the website and on the iPod device, whatever it may be, iPhone, iPod, whatever. Uh, the show notes are uh, rearranged a little bit and I think make more sense now than they used to. So check that out. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month now, entirely thanks to the support of members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
10: Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change? More podcasts. Ten a month. And there's the iPod apps, the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers. And now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on just about every At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on, not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon, and you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a a big difference in our world keeping the best of the left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced heard and passed on i'm proud to be a part of that and you will be too do your part do what you can thanks